0: The Monday Mindset Podcast, where we share things of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 74. And before we get started, I just wanted to give a brief mention and a thanks to Dala. One for becoming my latest Patreon and supporting the work I do, bringing this podcast to you. But also she picked up on the mistake that I made that I will go and correct, but I just wanted to make a note here. If anyone else spotted it, it was an anaerobic aerobic mix up. And I thought I was being so clever correcting you because I thought you'd made a mistake. And I spent ages trying to... (laughs) create editing magic to replace it. And yes, I should have known better than to doubt you. (laughs) But back to what we should be talking about this week, it's your turn, Terry, to share something that you found interesting. So what have you got for us today?
1: Well, Daisy, I'm bringing back a person that we've heard from in the past back in the early days of the podcast, When I shared an episode with Dr. Andrew Huberman, he is a neurology researcher, and he looks specifically at brain plasticity, or most of us may hear of neuroplasticity, and he looks at the circadian rhythm and arousal system, and a lot of his research is in the visual system and activation in the brain. But this was an episode of one of my favorites and one that you like as well, Impact Theory with Tom Bilyeu. And the title of the episode was Change Your Brain by Using These Hacks to Increase Your Dopamine. Mm -hmm. I've been doing more research about dopamine and it's more complicated than I ever thought it would be, but I thought this episode gave us some good information. So I wanted to share that today. So a lot of us hear dopamine as being referred to as a happy chemical, and that we eat certain things or we do certain things to get a hit of dopamine. And this is really kind of an inaccurate way to think about how dopamine works. He talks about, and of course, it's a fascinating conversation between him and Tom Bilyeu. Tom, several times through the podcast episode, his mind is blown, he is amazed by what he's learning. (laughs) Um, And they have a really interesting conversation. But Basically, Andrew Huberman uses some reference that says that the only biological currency that we use, like our, we come up with all these different currencies and systems, but our true biological currency is dopamine. It helps us to recognize win, lose, let down, pleasure, all of those things, and, and that it is our currency system. A lot of us think that dopamine is like I said, is that it's based on reward, that it's a reward chemical. Mm. And actually, it's more about motivation and craving than it is about reward. Hmm. So really important to understand its, its role in our functioning. They figure it out that it wasn't just reward several years ago in studying rats. And what they would see is that the rats would get the food, feel the pleasure of having the food, and then work to get more food. And they thought when they measured the dopamine response that it was the getting the food that was the reward. So, of course, what they did in research is they removed the dopamine response for some of the animals. What happened is when the rats got the food, all of the rats experienced pleasure. The rats who didn't have the dopamine response still enjoyed food, still ate the food, but they lacked the motivation to get the food. So if they moved the food dish just one animal length apart, those rats would not move to get the food, Mm, whereas the rats that still had their dopamine response would move to get it. So it helped them to see that dopamine is more involved in motivation.
0: I can see how that could end up being a bit problematic.
1: And really important, because a lot of us think about depression and anxiety and behavior change that we want to do, and we think it's all based on getting reward. And the reality is we can sit on the couch and eat highly rewarding food, but not be motivated to get it, not be motivated to do something. And he goes into further detail in other resources that I've listened to about all of the differences in different dopamine responses. But in this, he's really just focusing on some specific things. So a lot of us look at changing behavior or doing something that the goal is our currency, that it is what will drive us, that we have this really important why, and that makes us act. And he says that it's actually the pursuit of things that is the currency. Mm. That is what drives us. It also helps us gauge where we are with things in life, this currency of dopamine. James Clear, who both you and I have enjoyed and talk about, he also talked about this in Atomic Habits, that it's not the reaching of the goal that is rewarding or that is helpful in changing the behavior. It's the rewarding of the steps to get there. It's the celebrating of the small steps. And BJ Fogg talks about that in Tiny Habits as well. So- Understanding this currency idea can help us to interpret and use dopamine better. And the key takeaway here for everyone, I'm going to say it many times, is it's the act of wanting something and moving toward it that is rewarding, not the getting of Mm. it. That's just a win. That is an exciting thing. But if we use that as the dopamine response, it's going to backfire on us. So craving and wanting these feelings trigger a dopamine release because dopamine is really used to reinforce important things. I always use this example with clients. I gave Koa and Gracie a treat one time in the elevator and for a couple of weeks, every time we would go to the elevator, Gracie would go right back to the spot where that treat had fallen on the floor in the elevator she had a dopamine response that told her, go find food there again. Mm. So this is how dopamine reinforces things. Rather than, she didn't get rewarded, she got reinforced for finding food. And then she was getting that reinforcement to go seek it again.
0: Dogs are amazing at picking up things like that. I've noticed with mine, the Mm. latest thing with mine, since I've been listening to podcasts and audio books when I go for a walk they don't hear it because it's in my earbuds but I think what I must have been doing is starting to play it just out the normal speakers as I'm sort of you know getting their leads on and things like that and then I plug the speakers in so it's it's just in my ears when we get out the door because as soon as I get an audio book playing in the morning, not when I'm about to take them for a walk that I quite often now am just starting it up in the morning you know as I get going. They all get excited and they all jump up and oh, we go for a mm-hmm. walk. <laughs> There's the dopamine response, the old Pavlovian response, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's incredible. It's
1: the craving and the seeking mm. that get the mm. dopamine mm. that cause a. If we can connect dopamine to that, as I'll talk about, that's what we really want. So, two sources of motivation related to dopamine. One is that the wanting or seeking being its own sense of pleasure, that being in that state of moving towards something and wanting it, if we find pleasure in that, that motivates our behavior. And we tie this to the dopamine so we get that positive reward. So again, going back to James Clear or BJ Fogg, we celebrate that. We say, wow, you put in really great effort today. That was really cool that you did that. We celebrate it. And then the capturing... The win is wonderful. The achieving the goal, that feels good, of course. But if we attach that, attach dopamine to that winning of the goal, that can be kind of dangerous, partly because the win doesn't happen as often. Mm -hmm. And so if we only reward ourselves or get that dopamine connected to the outcome we have to wait a lot longer and we lose that motivation. And that'll make a little more sense as as I share some more things. Um, But it actually can backfire on us. Partly because, let's say, for example, most of us have probably experienced this around food, but there are lots of examples we could use for this. What happens when, let's say, for example, you or I decide we're going to eat some cookies. And we start eating the cookies and they taste really good. But we've been anticipating how amazing these cookies are going to be because we don't really eat many cookies anymore. And so we eat them and it's a little bit disappointing because it's not as rewarding as we expected it to be. Mm. He refers to this as the dopamine reward prediction error. So you anticipate the reward to be great and it isn't as great as you were expecting. And this has two downsides for us. First, our baseline dopamine response decreases. So you were anticipating, you had this dopamine response in anticipation, you had it and it wasn't as good. So your baseline dopamine decreases. And then you are now working from a kind of deficit place. You have a lower level of dopamine to try to build motivation. So what do many of us do? We eat more of it because we keep waiting for that bigger response and we don't get it. So by attaching it to the goal, this is an example where it backfires on us. If the goal isn't as satisfying as we thought it would be, it sets us back in our motivation. The other thing is that when we hit the goal, the big event happens. We reach what we've been seeking. We then fluctuate into a state of pain, a letdown phase. And pain and dopamine, they kind of work hand in hand. So after the dopamine comes the pain and the pain causes us to want and crave, therefore build the dopamine connections and move forward. What we've learned about this pain and dopamine response is The pain needs to be a little higher than the celebration itself. So let's say, for example, I got a promotion and people celebrate and they make a really big deal out of it. Well, the pain's going to need to be a little more intense than that. (laughs) So it's going to cause a pretty big pain response. But instead, if we can look at it, I'm so grateful. That was something I worked really hard for rather than just the big celebration of it. We actually will be motivated to continue forward because what happens is the pain follows the dopamine of the big celebration. The letdown occurs. We lower our dopamine response. Now what some of us do is we instantly want to seek the next step. So we go from one high and we, we start seeking the next high right away. This gets us in trouble. We actually need to accept that there's going to be a letdown. And sometimes we might need to stay in that letdown state, even for a couple of days, because that lets us reset our dopamine response. Hmm. And then we can start connecting it with the craving and the wanting and start building the motivation again. He also talked about something in here about the idea that dopamine and adrenaline are very connected. And that dopamine actually manufactures epinephrine, which is adrenaline. And so by having this dopamine response, we get more adrenaline. We get more drive to keep pursuing this thing that we're working toward. Very important though, again, that we let the scale reset with time of not pursuing something so that we can build up that process again. And they go into some examples of Tom talking about he owned the company Quest, which makes um, low carb bars and Mm. chips and different things. And when he sold that business, it was a huge business. And he had 3,000 people working for him and he sold it. And the next day he went to work for Impact Theory. It was a small company just starting out. And some people wouldn't be able to handle that letdown. But for him, that's a very natural process because he doesn't get so caught up in the what's next, I have to stay on this high. He's used to the idea that, okay, starting over, but another high is coming. So he does still feel the motivation. So again, just to kind of repeat this, a big peak in dopamine tied to the win sets us up that it's actually better to temper that a little bit, allow for the letdown, expect that the letdown comes, knowing that that's going to allow us to ratchet it back up and get on that dopamine trail again. But we have to let the letdown happen. The up and down of the dopamine and the pain response is always more effective than staying up there with the higher dopamine response. Mm. And this is confusing for us because we like the dopamine response. We want to stay in that place, but we actually need to let the letdown happen. He also talks again about the pain and pleasure principle and that understanding that how much pain and how much pleasure we can experience are correlated. So how much pleasure you can experience is directly related to the amount of pain you can experience So if you stay, again, too much on that high, you have nowhere to go. And it actually decreases over time. It loses its effect. He then talked about something that I thought you would be interested in, Daisy, because he used an example of cold water (laughs) and the cold water swimming that you've talked about. So he talked about this pain and pleasure and a couple of studies that he looked at. One was looking at shocking people. And we can't really do much research in this way anymore, but (laughs) researchers used to get away with some kind of torturous (laughs) research. So what they found is that as they kept doing this and they exposed people to quite a bit of the shock and the pain over time, the people would, when they would give them a certain level of shock that early on caused pain, the people actually experienced pleasure Hmm. because they began to associate the two and they knew relief was coming when the pain came and the relief would also bring pleasure. So here's the study about the cold effect. So an ice bath, even as short as just a couple of minutes, increased dopamine for the next two and a half hours up to 250% above the baseline dopamine. Wow. But the important thing about this, the way often this has been misinterpreted is then people take away from this cold water activates dopamine. That's not actually the proper interpretation according to Andrew Huberman. He says it's not because the cold activates the dopamine, but the pain of the cold does. Pain activates us to get dopamine going again. This is why that principle of pain and pleasure is so important. Most of us want to avoid the pain.
0: Yes, I'm trying to get my head around how that works then. Where are you getting the pleasure that you're getting the pleasure in the relief from the pain?
1: Correct. Hmm. And once you've broken the dopamine, not in this example of the ice bath, but in like achieving a goal, Once you've already got dopamine going, you kind of need to break out of it and reset Mm. because you can't keep just adding more. You're not going to get more benefit. So you need to come back more to that let down place of pain response because that then allows you to start the motivation and connection to, to dopamine again. So in this example, the pain caused by the ice bath, the relief of it shoots up the dopamine quite a bit, obviously, Mm. 250% over the next two and a half hours. So this is an example where we just misinterpret
0: Mm. the findings. Mm.
1: It's not that cold water activates dopamine. Mm. It's the pain involved and
0: the relief that comes from that. Very interesting. Is this where things can go wrong with, I'm just thinking about, cravings and what happens in sort of those addictive cycles with when you were talking about the things like when you're thinking about something, especially if it's something that's quote unquote been forbidden from your diet, say. And I mean, it brought to mind an experience I had years and years ago with ice cream I've spoken about before, there was this great anticipation, there was a rush to go and get it. I knew where it was when they started stocking Hagen dazs in my supermarket in France and they hadn't had it and it was my favorite ice cream and it was a Sunday and I knew where I could go and get it and I had to rush to go and get it it was at that time when my sleep pattern was awful and I had to get there before midday and I but the anticipation was building I wonder what flavors they're gonna have what am I gonna get ended up getting all of them And coming back and the anticipation of tasting it as you're driving home and it builds and it builds and that, yeah, that all those pleasure receptors are firing off. And then like you say, I guess there's some pleasure in that first mouthful, but it feels like you've already crested that wave. And as you taste it, even that first mouthful you're on your way back down again. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there eating it because I was in the middle of a depressive period. I was crying, feeling miserable, Mm -hmm. but eating this ice cream because I wanted to try and get that Mm -hmm. feeling, that dopamine hit, I guess, is what I was trying to get and I couldn't get it.
1: And he really makes this point in this podcast and in others, Even the reference that we all use of a dopamine hit isn't
0: accurate. Mm, It's just completely wrong. He does
1: talk in another resource about peak experiences versus kind of the smaller experiences. But we act like we don't have it and then we get a hit of it. Mm. And the reality is while you were anticipating it, you were trickling out dopamine. That was the reward right there. Mm. So this is why this is so important We need to start to realize that it's the pursuing of the reward that feels good, but recognize that the pursuit is the reward because what you were thinking in that point is getting the ice cream and eating the ice cream, then I will have the reward and that let you down. Mm. And I know that example makes it hard to think that I'm going to really just enjoy the seeking of the ice cream rather than the eating of the ice cream, but... But overall in life, that's a really important concept. We have to start recognizing that the pursuit of things is rewarding. Because if we hold up the end result as when we will feel rewarded, we set ourselves up for the the dopamine reward prediction error. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as rewarding as you thought it would be. And then that's a letdown. And then- we overindulge to try to create that peak experience. And you can't. Mm. Your dopamine has already peaked and you can't really create that with this high at the time.
0: That's the problem, isn't it? When you tie so much to the goal, Mm -hmm. it's always a letdown. Yeah.
1: Yep. The celebration has to be less than the win. So, getting the ice cream, that's not where your celebration is really coming. It's like, oh, that was nice. I was glad I, I got to eat that. Trickling out the dopamine throughout is what really serves us well. Then there will be a drop down with the pain, which is natural. The more pain, the more motivated you will be to achieve the next and feel the reward in the pursuit. So this is really important. They went then went on and talked about things I thought were very fascinating about kind of adrenaline junkies who, you know, for example, skydive all the time or do really risky things. What they find is that those people actually end up dying some type of kind of tragic death, mm. an addiction or something else, because they're always just going from one high to the next high and and don't let themselves do the up and down of the pain and the rebuilding and the resetting of the dopamine so i talked about social media and food i may have thought more about the food during this time is that you know we have so much highly palatable food available all the time so even if you think about our ancestors if they had dessert It took hours to make a dessert. You didn't make it every day. So it was special. Mm. And now we can get a dessert within a few minutes. And most of us have them in our home much of the time. And so pleasurable things that you don't do any work for, you don't get the same reward of the pursuit. And so you're just kind of trying to always seek the high. So social media is a problem with that because... You know, you can be on TikTok and the scenery changes in one hour 10,000 times. Mm. Whereas in our life, things are slower. You walk from the living room to the kitchen, you go outside, and all of a sudden we've got this boom, 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 boom. And again, we don't have to work for that. We can just go and we can see all these amazing things on social media platforms, So when the pleasure is too easily accessible without prior requirement of pursuit, we will be less successful when we can't buffer our pleasure, when we just go from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure versus recognizing, I'll enjoy this some and then I will stop. So you hear a lot of people talking about social media breaks. Mm -hmm. They don't go on social media for a week or something. That's actually helpful because we need the break from it reset and then we can rebuild. Andrew Huberman talked about he is going to set a goal for the new year. He's going to do even hours. He can be on his phone, odd hours. He doesn't even touch it just to put in those breaks more often. Even things like resisting your urges So in a day's time, he will make himself resist several urges, even if it's just, I want to get up and go get a drink right now. Mm -hmm. He'll tell himself no, because the constantly achieving it keeps the dopamine level up and you need the disruption. Interesting. They also talked about addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring pleasure. Mm, Makes sense. So... Those of us who have a food addiction and seek highly palatable food frequently, or an addiction to alcohol, or an addiction to sex, or gambling, or drugs, other things don't bring us that same pleasure, and we really start to narrow our focus. And the opposite of that is fulfilling life is a progressive expansion of pleasure through the pursuit of them. I think this is a really important thing for a lot of us to be thinking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you and I, we talk a lot about in our own lives about the food piece of this, but I, I think listeners could also probably think about other areas of their lives that, when we focus on achieving certain things as being our our sole source of pleasure, we eliminate the pleasure that we get from other things, and we really affect our dopamine. Um, response system. They went on and on. I mean, there were so many interesting things. I'm not even touching on some of the topics they talked about. They did talk quite a bit about um, sex and interestingly things about things such as um, a man can smell a woman's changes during hormonal times and a woman is more attractive to a man pre-ovulation It increases his testosterone. So this is about survival, but these inner drives that we're not even aware of, Mm. really fascinating stuff that they were talking about, and that we mess with all of that using perfume and using birth control and all kinds of different things. But an important thing going back to the dopamine is something that you and I have talked about several times before, and I know I talked about it when I brought up Andrew Huberman episode in the past, and that is bright light at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we have exposure to light between the hours of 10 p.m. and 4 a.m., it actually has a negative effect on dopamine. It's a particular part in the brain called the habenula, and this is responsible for helping us to learn, helping us to make dopamine serotonin, um, I also believe adrenaline, so a lot of the neurotransmitters are affected by this as well. And also it affects the pancreas action on metabolizing glucose. So people who are working on depression, anxiety, addiction, bright light at night, or if you're working on stabilizing your blood glucose control light at night is really, really a negative thing. And I of course try to justify it. I put all these filters on everything and I wear my blue light blocking glasses. But one of the things he talked about is it's just the intensity of light. And so the dimmer, the better, the less damage. And if it's occasional, not as problematic, but I often will wake up at three o'clock in the morning and grab my phone Mm. because what else am I going to do? And, And that's really damaging. So Huge reminder to me in this episode to be mindful of the light at night, but lots of really good stuff in this episode. And I, I just really wanted to emphasize to people to be working on letting the, the pursuit of your goal be the reward itself. If you hold off and expect all of the reward to come with the culmination, you're setting yourself up for issues with the dopamine response
0: there's a couple of things that I was thinking of examples from my experience that came to mind as you were talking about different things. And one of them was this focus on something when thinking along the lines of addictive tendencies, when you're focused too much on it, to the expense of appreciating the things that are on the way. So Mm -hmm. what came to mind for me was, I must repeat the experiment, when I stopped eating anything that contained sugar, which I don't eat much of anyway, but was really scrupulous with, you know, even the really dark chocolate, no sugar at all, but nothing sweet either. So no sweetness, so nothing at all sweet. And what I realized very quickly was, well, not realized very quickly this part, I know for a fact that I've got a sweet tooth. But what I started realizing was that when I'm regularly eating sweet things and I tend to, I'm one of these people who likes dessert after something savory, I like something sweet. But what I was finding was when I gave up that I started appreciating the food that I was eating before I would get there. And I realized that my focus was so much on that sweet treat, whatever it was at the end of the meal that I'd often almost not even take in or realize, certainly not appreciate Mm -hmm. what I was eating. When I suddenly took that element away it wasn't there. I knew it wasn't going to be there. This is all I've got, what's on my plate in front of me now. There's no sweet treat at the end of it. All of a sudden, slow down a bit more and actually appreciate the savoury food that you're eating. Mm-hmm. It just seems to refer back to that thinking about the the getting there, the process, the progress towards something and sometimes sort of taking that goal away. It also just, just brings to mind that I've mentioned so many times the whole reaching my weight loss goal you know I had this very fixed very specific weight loss goal and yeah it was a complete letdown when I got there Mm -hmm. it was such sort of hard work getting there and obviously the motivation sort of ebbed and flowed but there was that that Kind of, you know, sense of achievement in getting there and getting the steps as you were getting there. And when I got there, it was, yeah, it was a complete letdown. And I feel that I've personally, I've learned from that. And although at the moment, for example, I would like to lose a bit of weight. And that kind of is a goal, but it's not the main focus. I'm focusing on all the steps I'm taking to get there that are little health goals and experiments, Mm -hmm. like, you know, seeing what happens when I don't eat dairy, focusing on really trying to get my mood improved, focusing on trying to get my thyroid medication optimized, all these other things. And yes, weight loss is in there for various reasons, but it's very much just part of a whole. It's not this one fixed goal. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a good illustration of really thinking about the process and really appreciating. And especially as you start to feel things falling into place, they not only have a more lasting impact, but you're getting some satisfaction from starting to put the pieces together.
1: It's actually one of the reasons in my work with the fasting method that I, for so many people, I don't think a specific weight loss number or a specific mm. goal by a certain date serves us very well. No, not it, we lose our motivation with it. And even if we can keep the motivation up and, and achieve the goal, we then have little motivation afterward. Mm. And I think looking more, as you said, at the bigger health goals. And so maybe one of your health goals is to be at this weight But when that goal is achieved, you still have other health goals you're working on. So there's no reason to stop. There's no reason to settle back into a different place that, you know, kind of gets you into trouble again. So I think the whole concept that I just really wanted to emphasize is thinking differently about dopamine, because I think we've all been thinking, I get a dopamine hit from that. That's why I do it. Mm -hmm. And maybe reconsidering, we have more... Influence on how we're using dopamine than what we probably have thought.
0: Yes, because you talk about we need to attach it to this rather than that, like we have a choice. So, do we have a choice? What's the trick there? Is it to start thinking actually about more where dopamine comes from and focusing on that? You know, it's all very well saying, yes, attach it to this rather than attaching it to that, but isn't it? to a certain extent it's just an automatic thing or is this something that we can change a bit like you know the whole neuroplasticity concept
1: i think definitely from listening to this episode i think we definitely can affect that and it's by what we're prioritizing what we're putting really out there as what are the pieces of this that we will celebrate if we only focus on the goal and focus on celebrating when we reach the goal we're not optimizing our dopamine use mm. whereas if we can switch over to the focusing on the process of getting where we're going because we'll always have somewhere that we're going so we will always have reasons to keep the dopamine response in line and go for the pleasure and the pain you know the reward and the letdown so i think it's super important that we start to shift where we're placing our emphasis, how big we celebrate the outcomes versus how big we celebrate
0: the process, the journey. Mm. And spend a bit of time in that let down Mm -hmm. phase as I guess a period of reflection Mm -hmm. and thinking about the next stage to go. Well, I feel quite good about this episode because I feel like I'm kind of getting to that place albeit maybe via the hard way Mm. (laughs) i feel like i i have uh, not necessarily knowingly learned some of these lessons already because it sounds like i've been changing my behavior a bit Mm -hmm. in the right direction but yes i found particularly the pleasure pain Dopamine connection that you were talking about, especially obviously with the cold water, I found that fascinating so yes i'm gonna I'm going to be thinking about that a bit more. Very interesting episode. Thank you very much, Terry. I
1: should probably clarify something and they did not talk about this, but notice as I'm listening to us talk a lot about pain I am not <laughs> I am not proposing that people should start to focus on creating more pain in their lives <laughs> or becoming Um, sadomasochistic or anything like that. Just the idea that allowing ourselves to even recognize the challenge, the letdown, that that that's a natural part of that pain pleasure. I don't mean we have to be in intense physical pain to have a dopamine...
0: No, it's it's more embracing the contrast, yes, isn't it? Yes. When you spoke about that before, Perfect. it yes. actually reminded me of my one of my favorite poems by Keats, Ode on Melancholy. And the whole concept behind that is that you cannot experience joy without also experiencing melancholy. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just this idea that you have to embrace that contrast with one comes the other and you go through the different phases and that you have to go through that other phase to really get the benefit of the quote-unquote good one. Mm
1: -hmm. Bingo. (laughs) Well, I hope that everyone has some takeaways like that one, Daisy, and I hope that everyone has a great week.
0: Have a wonderful week.